How many of you have ever pruned a tree of any kind or a shrub? You know, I, Mickey Kurtanik, you know, we live in the Kurtanik's home. Uh, we don't live with them, uh, but we live in their home. And she or he or maybe both, I think it was mostly she, has put in just a beautiful uh, landscape. And we have this terraced landscaping in the backyard uh, and uh, we have a giant orange tree, we have a grapefruit tree, we have a fig tree, we have two apple trees, uh, we have a second kind of orange tree, we have a Meyer lemon tree, uh, and we have a regular lemon tree. And by the way, the orange and the grapefruit, it never stops producing. You pick them and they just grow back. So come over anytime. I'm being serious. Just come in the side gate, pick all the oranges and grapefruit you want. I'm not kidding. Uh, help yourself. But the lemon tree, the big lemon tree, it just looks like it's on its deathbed. Poor thing. It's about, I don't know, seven feet tall, about five feet wide. And it was when we moved in a couple of years ago, there were lots of lemons on there. I don't think there's a single one on there right now. Poor thing. Uh, so I was reading up and I thought, well, I've never pruned that before. And I guess these little tiny skinny things that come out, little branches down by the roots, supposed to prune those off all the time because those suck up all the water. Uh, I didn't know that. And then prune off all the dead branches. And I thought, well, if I prune off the dead branches, there's not going to be anything left because the whole thing is dead. So uh, I did prune it uh, this week and I cut off quite a few of the branches. So and then I said a little prayer, you know, and, you know, did this thing and just uh, I'm hoping to get some lemons back. But that pruning Got me to thinking about John chapter 15 and uh, the opening two verses there where Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he's going to take away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he's going to prune it so that it will bear even more fruit. It's interesting Uh, And by the way, the pruning process of the Lord in our lives uh, is not always pain free or what we would say is a good time Uh, because the pruning is cutting away the parts that aren't good. Correct. Uh, So that more good can grow. Uh, And so it made me think, too, that the Lord uses a lot of different methods of pruning. And really the word pruning there is sanctification. Uh, or spiritual growth, uh, growing more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the pruning is all about. And one of the primary tools that God uses uh, to keep us producing fruit in our lives is the family, uh, the family relationships that we have. Uh, family is really one of the primary tools of sanctification uh, for our lives. Uh, You know, the scriptures say, and I know I'm getting a lot of noise on here. I don't really know what to do about that. So uh, we'll pretend it's not happening. That's one of my favorite approaches to problems. Pretend it's not happening and it will go away. Um, And it's not ever worked, but I'm going to stick with it. It'll work one day. So the family relationships, uh, husband, wife, parent, child, grandparent, grandchild, aunts, uncles, cousins, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, God uses these relationships to grow us more into Christ's image. 
The scriptures say as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Uh, But sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? And we call the sanctification that happens in family relationships by other words. Uh, We call sanctification in the family irritation, um, frustration, uh, obstacle, uh, disappointment, discouragement. Uh, You know, we give it different names when really God is looking down on our family and saying, hey, these problems you're having and these relationships you have, these are what I want to use to grow you more into the image of Christ if you would just let me do that. So it's really all in our perspective of how we look at our family relationships. And it is interesting, the scriptures are clear in the early chapters of Acts. Uh, it says that God uh, has placed each one of us specifically in the family that he has designed for us. Isn't that interesting? And some of you are like, hmm, wow, now I have no one else to blame uh, because God put me in this family. Uh, It is interesting, his sovereignty in putting the family together. Now, you have a two-page outline. The first page is seven and eight. That's the outline from last week I didn't give you because I went brain dead for a few moments or something. I don't know. But I filled in all the answers for you for Uh, The information from last week, and we want to focus our attention as we finish up this series today on marriage and the family. If you want to go to page nine uh, is where we're going to pick up uh, learning about what the role of the family is. I think this was from last week. We looked at family. The family is intended by God to be a place where there is honor and respect uh, that is shown uh, and that it's an important quality for all of God's people. Uh, And we went back to the Ten Commandments and we saw that each of those Ten Commandments has to do with honoring God and honoring others. I'm going to skip through uh, this because we did this last week. Here we go. I think this is the top of page nine right here uh, as we take notes. Now you have a complete set of notes for family and marriage relationships. If you've been coming and you've kept those, you have the whole set. So we see here that family and God's plan, the Bible teaches that the family should be a classroom in which the most important lessons of life are taught and learned. That the family unit is the place where great teaching should be going on, especially about the things of God. And both mom and dad, but especially dads, are commanded uniquely in Scripture To make sure we know what our kids are learning. And it's often portrayed in scripture as a relay race. uh, In the sense of parents are passing on the things and the truths of God. Like a runner passes on the baton in a relay race to the next runner. We pass on the things of God to our children and to the next generation. Just to give you some examples Uh, From the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4, it says, give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not what? Forget. He was talking to the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb in the scriptures. Uh, And God didn't want them to forget what he had done because he didn't want it to depart from your heart. 
But make them known the things you've seen and heard of God. Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord at Horeb to hear me and reverence me all your days and to teach your children. So parents are the primary responsible group or the parent is primarily the one responsible to teach biblical truth to children. And I know this is probably very shocking to a lot of people, but the church exists to support and strengthen what should be happening in the home. The church doesn't exist to take the place of the home or to replace what the parents are supposed to be doing. Because, frankly, your youth pastor, your head pastor, your Sunday school teacher, uh, your children's workers, uh, your ladies ministry director, whoever we have, how much time do we actually spend with you and with your children compared to how much time you spend with them in your homes? A lot more, right? You spend, we spend with our families. We, our kids, two of them are grown and married, but we still talk to them every week. They still call us with questions and things like that. I mean, uh, and even you're here, Benny, you basically live here. Uh, I mean, you're here almost every day because your parents are here. But still, you spend more time with your parents than you do with us, right? Okay. Did you get my text about Charlie Brown? Okay, you never answered me. Okay. It was on two nights, actually. Okay. I'm discipling. Which, by the way, this is totally off track. Uh, But someone gave me, I know who it is, I don't want to mention, a few years ago, someone picked up a book called The Gospel According to Peanuts. That is a tremendous, no, it's for real. It's a tremendous, because Charles uh, Schultz, I think, was a believer. Uh, And so there's this little book written uh, about how the peanuts incorporated the gospel message. Uh, So you need to pick that up and and share that with your kids. It's a really excellent little book. Anyway, sorry. Joshua chapter 4. Where we're talking about discipleship, parenting, you know, stuff like that. It says, when your children ask their fathers in the time to come, what are these 12 stones, Joshua, that our forefathers were told to build this altar uh, outside of Jericho? Uh, Then you will inform your children how God dried up the Jordan River and dried up the Red Sea for you so that all the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and reverence the Lord your God forever. Why are we supposed to pass on biblical teaching to our children and not just biblical teaching, but pass on the great things that God has done for you in your life? Why are we supposed to do that so that our children and the generations to come may learn to revere and honor and praise the Lord for everything that he's done? I think it's a great I know we're all so busy already, but I know a few families. uh, We never did this, but I know a few families uh, that keep. Uh, a memory book of things that God has done for their family or a memory box where there's some kind of event or some kind of happening or something that God has done. And they'll put a, a something in that box to remind them what God has done. And then every once in a while, they'll sit down and go through these things to remind themselves and their families of all the things that God has done for them uh, through the generations. It's really important that this responsibility goes to the family. Psalm 78 that I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers told us we will not conceal them from our children, but we will tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord, his strength and his wondrous works. 
God commanded the fathers to teach their children so that the generation to come might arise and teach their own children. Isn't that wonderful? Our children are not going to learn about the Lord in the school system. Our children are not going to learn about the Lord usually when they're hanging out with a lot of their unsafe friends. And by the way, they should have unsafe friends. But our children learn about the things of the Lord when they spend time with mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle and cousins, so on and so forth. And we teach and we minister and we bring to mind all that God has done. So in Joel's day, uh, Israel was preparing for an invasion from Assyria uh, and it was compared to an invasion of locusts. Uh, and so Joel Ask, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation and so on and so on. You should be able to have memories, even though you may have relatives who were believers in the Lord Jesus and they have long gone on to heaven and either you've never met them or you don't remember them like our kids. Jay barely remembers Lisa's dad. Uh, I don't remember how old Jay was when your dad went home to be with the Lord. Seven. Uh, But Jay spent tons of time uh, with Lisa's dad, who was very strong in the Lord. Uh, He'd take him outside, uh, and uh, they always had a really big yard and a riding mower, and Jay would sit on the riding mower with his grandpa, you know, and they would mow the grass. and, And grandpa would come and take Jay for these little walks and, Uh, Jay would come back and tell us the highlight was, Grandpa, let me pee outside. We're like, oh, wow, Jay, no, no, Grandpa, no. Uh, Oh, I didn't hurt anything. Uh, But but Jay, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. That's just what I remember. Behind the train depot along the Wabash River in Peru, Indiana. Yeah, okay, watch your step back there. Um, So Jay barely remembers that. Uh, And the twins, of course, don't remember spending time with Grandpa at all, uh, though he was around. uh, So they would have been three, four, oh yeah, four, oops, four when Bob went home to be with the Lord. But we talk about her dad's faith. It just comes up, you know, in conversations sometimes, car trips or whatever. Remember when your grandpa did this and, oh, your grandpa, you know, he was really... Uh, you know, we would tell stories of his faith. So we pass that on. So even though our children may have never met or remember, maybe they met their grandfather, but they don't remember him really. We can pass on the things that God did for him and through him. We've told our kids again and again how Bob was brought to saving faith as a child, but he strayed away from the Lord and uh, went into the military and then later Uh, his three kids began going to a good news CEF club and got saved and started going to church. Then Bob came back to the Lord and spent years and years strong in the faith, deeply involved at the church. Kids don't remember that, but we tell them that. So we tell them about the wondrous things that God has done in our family uh, and for our family. So parents and children, I think this is on your outline as well. The word of God declares that parents should be supervising the education of their children. It doesn't mean that parents are doing the education. It just means that parents are supervising what their kids are learning. Uh, That you know what we know what our kids are listening to. We know what our kids are watching. We know who our kids are hanging around with. 
we know what our kids are searching on the Internet. We know all of that because we oversee that education and we always emphasize the biblical instruction as parents. And I'm going to say as grandparents, as any family member, if you know the Lord, we're always constantly bringing God, we're bringing Christ, we're bringing scripture into any and every situation that our children face or that they're going through, emphasizing that biblical instruction. I remember once Nathan was in fourth grade, uh, and I don't know where he gets it, but he was a talker. I don't know. Lisa must. I don't know. Uh, but his talker. So we went to visit his teacher, Mrs. Kramer. And he was telling us every day. This is at the beginning of the school year. How mean she was. I thought, oh, no. I had a fourth grade teacher who was so mean. Her name was Miss Demoth. Wasn't that really close to demon? Mm-hmm. We used to call her the screaming Demoth. So anyway. So we got to go talk to his teacher. Well, we go to talk to her. And uh, we thought at first, just based on what Nate was telling us, well, we got to switch him. It's early in the year. We got to give him a different teacher because she seems like she's picking on him. And he's sitting up. She's moved his desk up next to hers and so on and so forth. So we go and talk to her as we're talking to her. And I remember her looking at us and saying, well, you know, all parents think their children are angels. And I'm like, uh, that's not what I think. Uh, I live with him. I know that he's not. But I didn't say anything. But we were talking to her and talked to her. Then we were talking on the way home, I think. And we realized, you know what? What would be best for Nathan in this situation? For him, because he was being talkative and he was a class clown. I don't know where he gets that either. I don't know. Talking and trying to be silly. Boy, your family, they really passed on some things so, but we thought, you know what, what would be better for him spiritually? I think it would be a good, we discussed it together. We thought it would be very good for him to learn, to honor and obey authority, even if that authority may not be the nicest or the kindest authority. So we decided not to switch teachers for him because we knew our son. He was 10, fourth grade. We knew his personality. We knew what he was like. We thought this might be a good lesson for him because she seemed like a very good teacher a bit abrasive but very good a bit stern and firm and we thought well that's probably what he needs so long story short by the end of the year our nathan and that mrs kramer it was like a love fest i don't know i mean god did something desk put back where it was they became great friends she went to a colts game once because she had season tickets and she brought him back a gift you know, and there we were at the beginning of the year thinking, you know, we got to get him out of there. And it turned out and he still we still talk about Mrs. Kramer and what a great teacher she was. But it didn't start out that way. But we wanted to try to bring Christ into that situation. We wanted to bring the word of God into that situation. We wanted to use this as an opportunity to disciple him and for him to learn some spiritual lessons. And that's what parents are supposed to do, right? And grandparents and godly families. That's what we do. Now, next. The family exists in the Bible. The Bible teaches that the family is a place of refuge. You see at the top. Refuge. A shelter in the time of storm. The family is supposed to be a place we can go for safety when life gets Hard. Because storms are a regular part of life on earth, right? Both real storms 
but we're talking figuratively speaking storms. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes a lot of unexpected things happen. Psalm chapter 90 says this. The days of our life contain 70 or 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon life is gone and it flies away. I mean, life is full of storms. If you've talked to Lilia Gonzalez at all in the last few days. So she works for a gentleman named Jaime. And he, he was a family friend. And he was instrumental in bringing Lilia and her family to the States from Colombia when Lilia was seven. Uh, and her parents worked for him for many years. Uh, and now, recently, not too many years ago, Lilia went back to work for him part-time at his real estate firm. Uh, not just a boss, but a good family friend. And she grew up with his kids. So Friday, she just waves goodbye uh, to him at work. Uh, she said usually she likes to just give him a hug goodbye because they're close family friends, all of them. Uh, so she left work at noon. At three, she got a phone call that he had died of a heart attack. Totally out of nowhere. Shocking. He was 69. Praise the Lord. One of his sons, Fernando, is a born-again believer. Uh, and is bringing light into that family. But our days are 70, maybe 80 years. Then it's over and we fly away. We don't know, do we? Psalm 139 says what? You have numbered our days. You have written every one of our days in a book before even one of them has begun. Life is unpredictable. Life is short. And a lot of life is very hard, isn't it? Life is full of all kinds of different storms. Look at these different types of storms. If you can't see it, by the way, in the bottom there, that's supposed to be a life preserver uh, or a life jacket. Our families are supposed to be like a life preserver uh, or a life jacket. Look at all these different storms that can pop up. Sometimes there's social rejection or ridicule uh, at school or at work. We get made fun of uh, or we get belittled or we get harassed. It's important that that's not what it's like at home. It's important, too, in a Christian family that we teach ourselves at home. How do we respond to those types of situations? How should I as a Christian I'm nine years old. I'm in third grade, but I know I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm being bullied. What or how would God want me to respond to those who are bullying me? Because I'm a Christian. You know, it's stuff like that. Or if they're putting the screws on me at work because they know I'm a believer and they make things difficult on me because I take a stand on certain things. How does God want me to respond to that? But those kinds of things can be a real storm in life. Sometimes we have unrealized expectations, don't we? We have unrealized expectations. Did this just go out? So we have unrealized expectations sometimes. We have plans. We have dreams. Uh, we have hopes of things that are going to come true. You know, we lay it all out in front of us. This is what we're looking for in life. And then... What happens? Things just don't work out like microphones. Things just don't work out like your thought.
Okay. Is this better? Sound better? Okay. Sometimes things don't work out like we thought. Uh, And we have these hopes and these dreams and we become bitterly disappointed. That can be a real storm in life, can't it? Something that's hard to get over. What about unreliable and unreasonable demands that people place on us? Uh, Or the pressures of life uh, at work or at school and things start to pile up and we feel like we're drowning I know somebody shared with me not too long ago. They keep piling all this stuff on me at work. I'm doing the dog paddle. I can barely keep my head above water, but I can't say anything because I don't want to lose my job. You know, it can be a real storm in life. What about financial setbacks? Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever been surprised by an unexpected financial setback? I'd be shocked if there would be a hand in here that doesn't go up. I remember uh, I got a dream job. Uh, The kids were little. We had just bought our first house. And I got hired uh, by General Motors in Kokomo, Indiana, in the Human Resources Department. In fact, my employer was the United Auto Workers through the University of Michigan. It was my first real job. Uh, Great benefits. And we could afford for Lisa to stay home. And uh, it was wonderful. So I'm working this job for a year. Then on April 1st, I get a call from my supervisor, Sandy. She says, I hate to tell you this, but the uh, UAW decided not to renew this benefit. Uh, And so at the end of the month, you won't have a job. Well, of course, it's April 1st. And I'm like, oh, Sandy, right. April Fool's. I get it. She had to tell me four times. I really thought she was pulling my leg. Uh, Then you're sitting there. You have a brand new home. You have three little kids. You put the phone down and you're like, I have 30 days to find a new job. (laughs) And you're like, oh, my word. Wow. Long story short, God provided. I had actually May, June, and July off with Michigan unemployment. Because I was employed by University of Michigan, I got unemployment benefits from the state of Michigan rather than Indiana, which were much higher. And I was able to take 12 weeks of biblical counseling training while I was off and looking for a job. What was interesting, it was only a week and a half after my training ended that I got hired at my next job, uh, Manpower Staffing Agency as a branch manager. I mean, God really took care of us. But, I mean, you've been there before, right? It just takes your breath away when it's like, uh, okay, I didn't see this coming. Uh, I'm out of a job. Or you get, you know, I have a a pastor friend uh, who uh, was uh, newly married Well, no, not newly married. I think they already had one child, but they had twins. uh, And I wrote these notes down so I wouldn't forget. In 1987, they had twins. They spent one week in neonatal care at a hospital, and they got a bill for $65,000. So he was like, Lord, that's more than I paid for this house we're living in. Uh, They're living in Ohio. So you're thinking California? Uh, no, Ohio. You could get a house for 65000 in 1987. He's like, Lord, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, the Lord worked there. They paid a little bit of it. Uh, actually, it was just a little church he was pastoring at, but they rallied around him and they paid his bill uh, for him. But sometimes we get those financial setbacks, don't we? You know, and the home should be the place of safety and refuge. 
and encouragement and kindness and gentleness to help us get through those types of things. Sometimes we go through physical illnesses and diseases, don't we? How many of you have ever experienced that with yourselves or with someone in your family? An unexpected illness uh, or disease. And then sometimes we go through spiritual challenges, don't we? And perhaps everyone in the home is a believer in Jesus, but sometimes someone in the home goes through a season uh, where they feel a little more spiritually weak, where they feel as if God is distant and they're wrestling with things and they're working through things. And it can be difficult, right? It can be a struggle. Uh, And as a parent... Sometimes it's difficult to watch as our children grow older and they're wrestling with the faith in order to make it their own rather than just having the faith of mom and dad. And sometimes it's easy to hit the panic button, right? Uh, And to lay awake worried at night uh, or to uh, become a second Holy Spirit in your child's life, uh, you know, or just become a nag. That's my that's my favorite approach. to nag my kids into faith. You know, that doesn't work either. I'm just giving you a heads up uh, if you're thinking about trying that. Sometimes we go through these storms of life, but the family should be the place where there's encouragement, there's patience, there's kindness, there's gentleness. The family should be that life preserver in those storms of life. We should be coming alongside to help And to encourage, not to condemn and to criticize. Because that's how our Lord responded to us. So lastly, we'll see that the family is a place where God is exalted and members are cared for according to the scriptures. As we mentioned at the beginning, family is a place or family is one of God's primary tools for sanctification. One of the primary ways that God uses To make us more like Christ. You know what's interesting? When we have differences within our homes, whether it's between the husband and the wife or the parent and the child, uh, you know, the grandparent with their children or or whatever, uh, when we have those differences, I think we forget that a lot of those differences are just merely the manifestation of God's creative ability. Does that make sense? That we're just different. Sometimes there, there can be conflict when really all it is is that we're two different people. Well, obviously, yes, yeah, she's a woman and I'm a man. That's one major difference. But not just that. We have different personalities. We have different likes. We have different dislikes. We have different ways of solving problems. Sometimes we uh, differ in uh, how we would approach, how we want to discipline the kids in this situation. Sometimes we differ with, okay, this is our budget. You know, I'd like to buy this and she would like to buy that. You know, there are just differences uh, that come up because of who we are as people. Uh, And I know that as we have grown in our marriage, we have grown and we've, uh, we had to put the brakes on at first. We spent, I think, about 10 years trying to change each other the first 10 years if you're here and you've been married 10 years or less and you're thinking this is rough uh, I want to encourage you that's not out of the norm 
But then we thought, you know what? We need to learn to appreciate each other's differences as simply the way that God is displaying his creative artistry. And we should see our differences as a way to come together in a stronger unity uh, to solve problems uh, and to grow in Christ. I should allow, you know, I should understand that all the differences in Lisa as a woman, as a person, uh, as First Peter 3 says, as a co-heir with me in the grace of life, everything that she is that I'm not is meant to help grow me more into Christ's likeness. Because everything that she is that I'm not helps me to see maybe what I need to work on. And vice versa, everything that I am that she is not, rather than rubbing each other the wrong way, it should be seen as, hey, God's speaking to me through the way that he's created her to be. And I think sometimes the friction in the home, a lot of it, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is just merely, let's say, creative differences. Creative differences in the sense that God makes each of us unique. And sometimes we're allowing his creative artistry to to become friction or just, you know, points of turmoil when it really shouldn't be that way. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm rambling on. You're thinking, I didn't pay for that part of this message. Okay. But just keep that in mind. The next time you're tempted to get angry or upset or frustrated at your family member, you know, deal with the problem, work through it, but also stop and think, how is God trying to sanctify me in this situation? What do I need to learn by what is happening here in my home? Colossians 3, chapter, or 3, verses 12 through 17. Turn with me to that. Colossians chapter 3. Does this describe your home? Now, this section of Scripture is specifically in the context of relationships, how we relate uh, to each other. Look at verse 12 of Colossians 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, he's talking to believers, you are holy and beloved because you're in Christ. Put on. That's really important. Put on. You know what that means? It means it takes effort. It takes practice. It takes learning To be the type of person that he's now going to mention. I think sometimes as Christians we think we can just maybe close our eyes and wait for the Holy Spirit to come and sprinkle his fairy dust over our hearts. And we change and we'll change and we'll metamorphose into this perfect, wonderful Christian person. doesn't work like that. Paul told the Philippians, work out your salvation. We have to work at it. So he says, put on. A heart of compassion. Now, remember, does this describe your home? Kindness. Humility. Which, by the way, humility is the premier virtue of the believer. So if humility is the premier virtue of the believer, meaning none of these other things can take place unless I have humility, which means to bow down low. What would be the opposite? What would be the premier vice? If the premier virtue is humility. Very good. Pride. Pride. Every vice proceeds from pride. Every virtue proceeds from humility. Gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you also should forgive one another. There is no holding grudges in the family of God. Bitterness is not allowed. Keeping a record of wrongs is destructive, and there's no place for it. Beyond all these things, put on what? Love. I'm in verse 14. Which is the perfect bond of unity? Now, here's a verse 15 that's often taken out of context. Let the peace of Christ rule or arbitrate in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now, sometimes we take that verse 15 and we apply it to a situation where we're trying to make a major decision to determine the will of God. And we say, well, I'm going to let the peace of God rule in my heart. This verse has nothing to do with decision making. This verse is talking about in my relationships with other believers, as I'm trying to put on all these virtues, I should let the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ brought by his death, that removed all condemnation from me. Romans chapter eight, verse one. Let that peace rule in the relationships that I have with others. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing once again with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I like that verse because if we keep it connected to the context, he's saying whatever you do in word or deed in your relationships, conduct all your relationships to the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? I may be in some difficult relationships, but even in those, I'm to put on these virtues first and foremost, because I want God to be glorified. Not to get what I want out of the relationship or the family. But I put on these virtues because I want God to be seen. He is more important to me than even myself. His glory as his child is much more important to me than my own. I love that verse, especially when we keep it in context. The very last slide. For our series. Here's what we do. Here's where we go from here. Go back over all the pages of notes that you've taken, 10 pages. And if you need them, Lisa can get those for you from the church office. Review those. I think we went over 12 plus 4. I think we went over 16 marks or 16 characteristics of a godly family. Go back over those. And talk about what areas you think need to be strengthened in your home. And then number two, a step that's a lot of times left out. Personally, confess your own part in any problems that may be there. Unconditionally confess your part in contributing to any problems within your home. With no expectation of receiving anything in return. 
Sometimes we may ask forgiveness or apologize and then our nose gets out of joint again because it was a humbling experience and the other person just said, okay, thanks, I was hoping you would do that. That's okay. That's what it means to ask for forgiveness or to confess. It's something you're doing as an act of worship to be pleasing to the Lord. It's not contingent on whether the other person responds in like. Though I have seen the hardest heart melt immediately when I have made the initiation to go and ask forgiveness. Don't underestimate the power of humility and forgiveness. Number three, what ways can you identify to serve God by serving your family? If you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, if you're a grandfather, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, if you're a brother or a sister, how can you serve God in your home by serving the others who live in your home? What can you specifically do? I think it would be good to have a conversation. What can you specifically do? So funny, early on, uh, we kind of fell into the pattern of who does what in our home uh, to serve the family. Lisa has a business degree. She loves numbers, so she takes care of our budget. I would rather stick a pencil in my eye than balance the checkbook. I hate that. And then because she's a godly woman, she says, well, you're the leader of the home. You need to know what we have. Yesterday we were heading over to look at tennis shoes for me. She goes, well, we have this amount. I said, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. It stresses me out when you tell me how much we have in the bank. I said, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know. I know. Tracy's going, oh, my word. (laughs) My wife says the same thing. She does that for us. She does a lot of other things. And then there are things that I've taken care of. Then when the kids were younger, you know, the boys uh, had a bedroom upstairs and they had their own bathroom. And I only went up there in case of a life-threatening emergency. Uh, but Lisa would clean that a couple times and the boys had to clean it twice a month. And then you'd have to go clean after they cleaned. Uh, but the kids had responsibilities uh, from a very young age. Uh, not because we were hard taskmasters, but they had to learn to serve in the home. So I think you should identify, no matter how young or old you are, what is your role in the home in in ways that you can serve God by serving your family. And be very practical. You can't say, because I know Isaiah, he's going to do this. He's going to say, I'm going to serve God by being nicer to my brother. Number one, that's an unrealistic expectation, which we've already talked about. But that's too vague. That's too general. You have to think of specific ways that you could serve your brother. Maybe make his bed for him every day. Okay. Okay. Or pick up his dirty socks. You could do that for him. Okay. Okay. Be specific. That's my point. Be specific. I know his socks pick themselves up. I know. I was thinking. Number four. This is a shocking truth. I have learned in my years of ministry experience that many, many Christians do not pray. A lot of conflict in the home will melt away if we are praying every day for each family member. And specifically for each family member. Whatever they have on their plate that day. 
uh, whatever they're dealing with. And sometimes the conflict has become so great in the home, we get to the point where we can't even stand to be with the person. And things start to deteriorate rapidly. And I want to testify to you today that if you begin praying, it will be virtually impossible for you to have any animosity or hatred towards someone you are praying for. And especially in the family unit, you need to be praying for each person in that home every day. Every day. Number five, thank God every day for each family member. And once again, be specific. Be specific. Every day, thank God for at least one thing for each family member in that home. I'm telling you, I am telling you, I'm testifying before the Lord. Your home will change if you pray for each person every day and if you verbalize one thing every day that you're thankful for. I'm telling you. And then lastly, find ways to worship and serve God together as a family. We have some families in our church that have been wonderful role models with this. Because when mom or dad are here, you see the kids here too. And the kids aren't just here standing around. They're here working with mom and dad. That's a wonderful thing. We are part of a local church. We're members. The scriptures compare each person to a part of the body. And it says the body can't function without every part. So it's really not enough. We're not fulfilling the biblical command if we're just attending. I call it sit, soak, and sour. If we just come in and we're just sitting and we're just soaking it up, then what happens to a sponge that's not wrung out? It sours. So if we aren't actively involved at our church, if we're not actively serving and helping in some capacity, then we will sour spiritually. That's just the way we're made. So as a family, look for ways that you can worship together and ways that you can serve together. That's how we build a household of faith. Let's stand together. I want to remind you once again, don't forget about next week. Please, please, please invite family and friends. Uh, We want this to be an outreach opportunity uh, as much as for our own church family. Let's bow our heads. Let's just spend a couple moments before the Lord. First of all, do you recognize that you're in the family that God designed for you from eternity past? If, if you realize that today, raise your hand. Yeah should be every hand. God designed your family for you and he designed you for your family. You are an instrument of sanctification for those in your home. And they are instruments for your spiritual growth in your home. They are not obstacles. They are not irritants. They are not frustrations. They are not roadblocks to what you want. They're instruments of what you need. And you are an instrument of what they need. And it takes humility. It takes humility. We have to bow down low 
before the Lord and say, first of all, Lord, thank you for my family. Thank you for giving them to me. Thank you for placing me in this home. Thank you for giving me people that I can serve and minister to. Thank you for the way, the many ways that they sharpen me spiritually. Even in the difficulties, even in maybe trials and hardships of life. Thank you that those things are meant to grow me into the image of Christ. Father, we need eyes to see as you see. We need eyes that see our homes as the place where we primarily learn about God and the place primarily where we teach and disciple and the place primarily where we have the opportunities to deepen our walk with you. So, Father, I pray you give us eyes to see the members of our family in a new light. That we might stop and pause and, first of all, confess and admit our own contributions to the problems in our homes. And then give us eyes to see those in our home as your instruments. Your instruments of grace and mercy. Uh, the way that you shape us and form us. Give us opportunities to grow. May we see our families uh, as part of the pruning process so that we might bear much fruit. So, Father, we praise you. We thank you. We adore you. We rejoice that we are part of the family of God and that you treat us as children. And, Father, we look so much forward to stepping into eternity and seeing our Savior face to face with our own eyes. So until then, Father, this life is full of so many storms. And Father, may we find that our homes are a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of encouragement, of gentleness and compassion, of patience, of kindness, of love. That each time we walk through that front door, we can just go, oh, it feels so good to be home. It feels so good to be home. May our homes be that kind of place. So we ask you to transform our hearts and our minds and our thinking if, we, if that's not our experience at this time. And help us, as it says in Colossians 3, to put on, to work diligently, to do our part so that we might have homes that primarily exist to bring you glory and to bring you honor. So we thank you for every good thing today, every good thing we have learned. We thank you for the way you have sifted our hearts and our minds. We thank you, most of all, for our Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, for our salvation. And it's in his wonderful, blessed name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. I hope you have a great day of rest.